right, welcome back to another edition of uh, Mormon Expression. I'm your host, um, John Larson. Lindsay, uh, isn't there, uh, you know, I kind of took a break. Isn't there some other magical things I'm supposed to say at the beginning of these? Um, like, didn't we say this is a production of Whitefield, blah, 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 blah. I always say, I always give a shout out to Whitefields when I remember. Well, th- I appreciate that. Thank you. So tonight we've gathered an all-star panel and a studio audience to um, talk about something we've had on the backlog. We we have an actual backlog of podcasts. I've been asked the question if we'll ever run out of ideas, um, and I think the backlog has a couple hundred um, ideas on it, and we can add more all the time. And most of the time when we record stuff, it doesn't come off the backlog, so... Um, I think we'll, as long as we want to, we'll have stuff to talk about. But this podcast is by special request from my my good friend, Megan. You see the commercials for Dos Equis, the most interesting man in the world. There is a most interesting person in the world, in my world. And I know lots and lots and lots of people. And Megan is the most interesting person I know. Megan, welcome to the United States. Thank and welcome you. to the studio. You have a sad, sad life. I do, indeed. <laughs> Wait, is, John, will you talk slower so she can understand what we're saying? Because, no, because y- she, y'all talk American. <laughs> American. No, I, I speak American. I can do it. M- Megan, this is not your first appearance on the podcast. No, is it? it's not. Is this your second or third or fourth? Oh, third? God, I see it's been a really long time, so I don't remember. I did something to do with, I think I actually had to listen to, um, to some talks at some point, and that was maybe so traumatic that I stopped. I had to <laughs> oh, listen, yeah. I had to, listen conference. to conference, yeah. Yeah, yeah I used to listen to conference too, but yeah. it kind of sucks. Um, of course, um, so Megan, welcome back to the studio, and uh, and Lindsay. Hello, John. Lindsay, uh, the, the most famous person here tonight. Why do you use that word? I'm not a philosophy professor. Well, uh, we, I'm doing my Italian homework while we talk. <laughs> or he just made a quip about Latin. And I'm doing Italian. I, I hear they're related. Any... If you're studying to... Italian, I should should have brought my Latin textbook. I do Latin. I can't conjugate verbs. That's problematic. You know, I, you want to hear if if we're if we're gonna nerd confess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this could be a long night. What, early in my career, I worked as a tester for a software. Hated it. It was it was awful. And it was one of those jobs where in two hours I could do eight hours worth of work. I had a Latin book, and I was teaching myself to read Latin. During the during the downtime, so I'm doing that right now, so, <laughs> so that I can read Spinoza in the Latin. Um, Latin Latin is fascinating. Okay, so Lindsay, welcome. Um, the the obviously the most important woman in all of Mormon feminism by far. That's right. When in feminism there is a hierarchy, and I am I'm there is definitely proud. a hierarchy. And if I was going to say something, they would have got me in a lot of trouble <laughs> and you in trouble too. And I won't say it. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. <laughs> and and then um, we 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 brought in a ringer. Um, Dennis Potter is a professor of philosophy at um, um, UVU. Yeah. Um, what else do we know about you? Studied at Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah. I studied at Notre Dame. I do work in philosophy of religion and logic. And I was also I'm also on the religious studies board there. Um, uh, and I was the Mormon studies coordinator for five or six years. Excellent. Well, founder of the of the Society for Mormon Philosophy and Theology as well. I'm glad that there is such a thing. Um, maybe we should look them up sometime. So, founder, but you're no longer. You they're know, actually having them. The, the the Society for Mormon Philosophy and Theology is having a meeting at UVU um, 
in November. So you should actually just look up there. Excellent. I'll have to check schedule out. of that. Yeah. All right. Well, um, tonight, by request from Megan, um, th- and this is actually something that I've been thinking about, oh, since I was an undergraduate um, 10, 10 or 12 years ago, and um, w- this, is, this is something that's been on my mind since I first read it. We're going to discuss Euthyphro's Dilemma and how it relates to Mormonism. Why do you why why do you I, laugh? I just feel like I was sort of thrown into the bus there. It's like everybody's gonna hear Euthyphro, dilemma, Socratic dialogues and go, Oh my god and you get, you're basically saying it's okay, it was Megan's fault. It is Megan's fault. She made me do it. You say that like it's a bad thing. Well you know. It's because Oh it's my gosh. She made us talk about philosophy tonight. She made us talk with brilliant people. Can you believe that? <laughs> And, and you, you know, Lindsay, um, I don't know if you know this, she's the editor. And, Lindsay, I want to point out that I haven't said f- yet this whole podcast. Thanks for giving me more work there, John. And I would just like to point out to all the people that say that I keep missing the F-words that I am listening as intently as I can for the F-words. But if you're hearing it more than I am, then there's more, something wrong with you and not with me. Right. Yeah. You you just you just prune them out. I just used some Mormon guilt. That's what I did. All right. So let's talk about let's talk first of all about um, Socrates. So Socrates was circa twenty three hundred years ago, three four hundred years before Christ. Yeah. A sort of a, a, a introduction to this. I I have said before that Mormonism was disproved in Athens. So tonight we're going to put that to to the test um, and see if indeed that's that's the case. So Socrates was uh, was a philosopher. We don't actually he didn't write anything himself. Everything we know about Socrates we know through through Plato and then through um, Aristotle. Uh, so 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 Socrates is this quasi mythical feature creature, kind of like Jesus or the Buddha or something like that. Yeah, but historical too. Yeah, but you're you're right. We're we're not able did you to just say Jesus wasn't historical. <laughs> oh no no no! I did not mean to imply that he wasn't historical. When you say quasi mythical, I just wanted to emphasize <laughs> that we do have good reason to think that Socrates actually existed, and we also do have good reason to think that Jesus did too. Thank you. Oh. Um, but uh, or at least I'm told that by the people who are experts in that area. I'm right, not, right. I'm not even an expert on 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 ancient philosophy, but. But yes, it is. Yeah, Socrates. We have good reason to think that Socrates existed, but we don't know exactly what he really advocated philosophically because Plato used him as a mouthpiece, and we don't know when he's expressing his own views as a, as a mouthpiece for Plato, or when he's actually speaking for Plato, right? Which right. It, it's likely that in the Euthyphro that this is something that Socrates really did talk about, according to s- many scholars. But uh, but in in the later Plato. Platonic dialogues, it probably has nothing to do with what Socrates said. Right. Yeah. Um, if I remember from my philosophy classes, and I, of course, no expert either, we see an evolution um, in the early writings to the late writings. And by the time we get to the Republic, Socrates is pretty much a mouthpiece for Plato's philosophy. Yeah. And you can actually see um, differences and discrepancies. But so so the, the way that Socrates taught was through the dialogue, um, which is sort of a um, him asking questions to somebody and entrapping them. <laughs> Um, in their own words. Um, and, and the, the great thing about them is they're, they're fairly short and they're, they're, they can be kind of entertaining to read, um, as far as philosophy goes. It, it reads better than Sartre, for example. <laughs> you know, so. Heidegger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so they, they can be kind of interesting. The other great thing is if you read, you know, Plato and Socrates and, and, um, Aristotle, 
Well, you've pretty much read most of philosophy, and everything else is just sort of commentary on that. You're going to let that one slide. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say you'd have, to, you'd have to include Kant then, too, if you're going to – yeah. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, so, so I tried to include that at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> Including – Oh, my God. Oh, that's a joke. <laughs> I see that this, this is a little bit more liberal format than I'm used to. Yeah, goddamn it! This is a this is a uh, speak your mind format. Okay, so um, I'm so sorry. I will stop. Oh no, that's a, no. It's fine. See, it's no fair because you'll edit that out. Maybe, maybe, awesome. maybe I will edit this one. There's no guarantee. <laughs> That I am putting this up to the FTP. I actually think this kind of approach is good for when talking about philosophy because it makes it less boring. But philosophy can get dry sometimes. Yeah, to some people. I'm not that way, but yeah. I appreciate that. So, um, so, so we have this, di- this dialogue between, um, all the dialogues are named after whoever Socrates is talking to. So if you have the Crito or the Euthyphro, this is whoever, whoever Socrates is, is talking to. And Socrates, um, I know I'm going to piss off the purist, but he pretends to be, um, just sort of this common person who's not as deep of a thinker. He pretends to be um, um, not 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 very not very smart. And of course, the um, the oracle at um, uh, I've been drinking scotch. Delphi. The, or- the Delphi oracle said that he was the the wisest man in the world because he's the only man who acknowledged that he knew nothing. That he 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 was he was a blank slate, as it were. So the dialogues oftentimes have um, Plato trying to understand some terminology or some concept, and he goes through this, this, this dialogue with the individual in order to have them define it. And they almost always end in frustration with the other person walking off and saying, um, you've got me trapped, as, as Socrates demonstrates that what they're believing or what they're saying is inconsistent, that it doesn't really make sense. And thus he sort of, he sort of dis- disproves this false belief that they have. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's a good way of explaining it. <laughs> okay. Can I can I say something that I found useful? Never ask again. <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry. Um, I found that same sort of format useful when talking with believing members of the church when they accuse you of something. The best recourse instead of arguing is just to ask questions. Yeah, Dig deeper uh, and have them define their own beliefs for you. Right. Um, back in the olden days, I used to argue with apologists quite a bit on some of the old bulletin boards, and that that was the tactic of myself and other um, critics was just to keep asking them to define their terms. Um, and of course they, the sophisticated ones would never fall for such a trap. They're not going mm-hmm. to define the words they're using, but, but it, it, it is an excellent way to sort of pin down people who don't, if they, if they will wa- indeed walk into the trap, the, the, it, it to, to really figure out what I you're talking about. I don't call it about. a trap. I call it a thought exercise. It's, it's very important. And that's why, that's why, um, I, you know, I have mixed feelings to go off on a complete tangent about the humanities. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a humanities major and, and philosophy and, and, and those sort of things. They're really great for teaching people how to really think. They're not really great for earning money once you get done with school is the, is the problem. But, but being able to understand what base assumptions we have is very critical, um, to being able to deconstruct and understand the world we run into. And it's something that's completely missing in Mormonism, at least the Mormonism that's in the books that are published by the church. There's all this assumptive things that, that are going on all the time that people don't quite understand. And and I think that that's the genesis of this podcast, because we want to point to one of the, the basic fundamental beliefs of Mormonism and see how um, Socrates was dealing with that hundreds of years before Christ. You, 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 look I, like you're, you look like you're about to say something. Oh, no, no, I'm Can just, I ask I'm just, you a historical question <laughs> yeah, that sure. came up when I, when I was researching this topic? 
I, I've been reading a lot of Christian apologetics on this to see what they're saying about it. And everyone is acting like this is new information. So I'm wondering historically how these sort of philosophical discussions fit into Christianity even a hundred years, years ago or 200 years ago. Did they at all? I mean, were people talking about this? This kind of issue? Uh, can, you know, like comparing Socrates to Christianity 500 years ago. Oh, from the very beginning of, of Christianity, you have Greek philosophy being I mean, Paul himself is reacting to the Greek philosophers in in his texts. Uh, from the very beginning of, Christ- of Christianity, you already have it being influenced by Greek thought. So if they haven't solved it, what makes you think we're going to Well, and, and Christianity, this is, by the way, one of the ways we know the Book of Mormon's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some Christ- of us, I would say. <laughs> Christianity, you know... Depends it, on what you mean by true. Uh, oh, <laughs> indeed. So we do have a, philosophy, <laughs> a philosopher with us tonight. Um, so... Uh, uh, Christianity basically runs head on into into Greek um, philosophy and Greek thought, and it's especially embodied in the person of Augustine, and and then a new sort of a belief system, a new religion, a new way of looking at things emerges, and this is why I say we know the Book of Mormon to be false because. The, all that Greek thought, all that Greek theology is interwoven into the Christianity that exists in the Book of Mormon, even though the Book of Mormon is supposed to predate this, this time period. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when we take a list of, 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 um, and I think, I think we had a podcast on the anachronism of the Book of Mormon. I think we actually bring this up that, that it gets so interwoven so tightly, Greek thought and Western thought and Christianity that, that they become really inseparable for anybody. Um, you can trace roots and stuff, but the, but the, the, the philosophy and the, the theology that develops and Book of Mormon is built right on top of that. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's really, um, time out of place. Um, I, I should say, I should say something though about the, the nature of the Socratic dialogue and, and, and what the philosophical project's about, given what Lindsay said just a minute ago. Um, uh, some philosophers are theorizers in the sense that they, they ask questions because they want to get the answers. They want the, the theory that's correct. Plato was kind of like that. Plato had a theory about the way the world is. Uh, he thought that, abstract things, forms, universals actually exist more fundamentally than the concrete particulars that we interact with, with our, with our sensory perception. So there's like, there's a perfect table out there and we just yeah. interact with an imperfect or, table. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the, the, the form of justice. Um, and, and our political system can approximate that, but maybe not really quite get there. Um, so, so there are some philosophers who are theorizers who do want answers or solutions, but the, but Socrates was not one of them. It seems like it, uh, that Socrates was one of those philosophers who was more about problematizing solutions. And, and there is there's actually quite a tradition in philosophy, Socrates being one, Nietzsche being another, Zen Buddhist philosophy being another example, uh, Kierkegaard and Wittgenstein, in, in more contemporary philosophy. Um, uh, these are philosophers who, they see philosophy as an activity and not an attempt to come up with a theory or a, or a final answer to a question, right? And Socrates is kind of like that. He's not really trying to, in fact, he's trying to problematize all answers, right? When he, when somebody gives an answer, this is piety or this is justice, Socrates is going to ask them questions to reduce their position to absurdity eventually, show that there's an incoherent aspect to their view. So uh, problematizing solutions sounds like something Congress has been doing lately. <laughs> I'm not... I'm not I, I'm not, I'm not sure. So you're saying it's more about the process of the argument than to coming to a, an actual answer or believing there is one answer? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think that it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a way of 
in a, in a sense, it's kind of a way of life thinking this in this kind of in the way that Socrates does about things and asking those kinds of questions and not allowing really simple and easy answers to those questions. I think. Can I just say as a Mormon that doesn't comprehend me at all? Well, I don't know what you're saying. I, I'm going to say the same thing here because I think this is really <laughs> no, important. No solution. A Zen Buddhist what? would like it though. I mean, a, it, a Zen Buddhist would love it, love it. but Mor- Mormonism is really looking for solutions. You know, well, where does God come from? Well, there was a God before him. Well, where does that come from? Don't, sh- don't, don't ask that question. I mean, they're looking for like pat it's God's so- all solutions. And, that, and that's, that's the, this, this whole podcast is, is sort of that uh, unspooling these sort of ideas that, that religion really likes to put and, and put down in concrete. And, and when we're going to look at what is good and, and why is good in relationship to God, then, then that's something that's just assumptive. If you pick up the gospel doctrine, that there's there's no real discussion in that manual on what is good. It just it just wants to lay that foundation and move on to saying don't don't touch your wee wee, and 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 they don't want to deal with the harder issues. And that's why Socrates is no, interesting. No, they don't want to deal with the harder issues. <laughs> oh, I see what you do. I'm not even drinking here, folks. <laughs> I am having so some naturally. yummy scotch that was yummy. brought to me from all the way from Scotland. I appreciate it. Um, that's what true fans do. Those of you who say. <laughs> You send me emails and say that you're a fan. <laughs> I'm just saying, if it's attached to a bottle of scotch, you'll get a better response from me. I'm just raising the bar, that's all. Just... Um, I, I'm usually drinking skunky beer, so thank you. If the quality, you'll have to tell me if the quality of the discourse goes up or down <laughs> um, based on our drink. So, the, the, the dialogue really does with, deals with two questions. The first question we're not really going to deal with very much, which I was just alluding to a second ago, which is the definition of piety. What, what really does it mean to be good? Wait, can we back up and just tell the story of what it is? I think that would be easier for you. Please. Listeners. You want to put me to it? <laughs> you volunteered. So basically, they uh, Socrates is in, he's the lawyer. He's at a courthouse. No, so, so he's so at the courthouse. In, in Athens, uh, a citizen would re- would represent themselves. So so, And they would go to a, tr- a, a jury of their peers, of the other citizens of Athens, but they but they would they would be expected to be able to, uh, a, a gentleman uh, that's not the term they would use but would would be assumed to be able to um, orate on on his own um, behalf. Okay, and uh, a man comes to accuse his father of murder. Euthyphro. Yes, uh, who ha- he's accusing him of murdering a servant who has murdered somebody. It's basically willful neglect. So what had happened was the servant has murdered this person and his master doesn't quite know what to do with him. So he leaves him chained up in a field. In a ditch. In a ditch, waiting to hear a response. And through neglect, this man dies. So his son says, this is wrong. You are a murderer. I'm going to accuse you of murder. But there's more of an agenda behind his accusation. I feel a little intimidated explaining this <laughs> when, when a professor is sitting next to me. So he goes to accuse it and he's asked questions by Socrates like, wow, you must be really pious to be able to bring such an accusation to the table. And uh, then they have this dialogue about what piety is. Then they talk about the nature of God. And basically Socrates says, you're accusing your father. You must be really sure of this. Yeah, let's slow it down a little bit. So... So when he meets Euthyphro, you know, Euthyphro um, is prosecuting his father for this murder. 
And Socrates says, well, okay, so you obviously must know what piety is, which means that I need to study with you. I need to be your disciple. And he always does this every time mm-hmm. somebody claims to know something, right? Okay, since you know this, I need to, I need to listen to you. So you need to tell me, tell me what piety is, right? And of course he tells him what, uh, piety is prosecuting your father for murdering. And, <laughs> and Socrates says, well, look, I'm not asking for an example. I'm actually asking for a definition, a more general, you know, characterization of what piety is. Um, and, uh, then, and he, after pressing, Euthyphro's really hard with abstraction, apparently, because he, he can't quite get there on his own. But after pressing him a little bit with some questions, Euthyphro eventually gives the answer that piety is whatever pleases the gods, right? And impiety is whatever um, uh, is not pleasing to the gods, whatever they hate. And Socrates, of course, points out that, well, the gods don't always agree on those things. Some, some, some of them think they like some things and others of them hate those things. And so obviously there's disagreement among them. And so you can't have an answer like that because then some things would be both pi- pious and impious, right? Some gods love, love it. Other gods hate it. So it's both pious and impious. Not a good answer. Uh, Euthyphro, of course, gives the, the answer that you would expect. Or in response to that, he says, well, it's whatever all the gods agree on. And Socrates is just about to press him on that when he says, okay, no, actually, it's better. It's a better time to bring up this little dilemma. And that's where he brings up the, the dilemma. So the, the dilemma is this. Is, uh, is, is, is the pious or the good, we'll use the, the good um, as our term, is the good loved by the gods because it, it, was, it is good or is it good because it is loved by the gods? In other words... Do gods do good things or require good things or recognize good because they see it out there in the universe, outside themselves, and say, that's good. And I, being an om- omniscient god, or at least a, a damn smart being <laughs> with superpowers, I recognize that to be good, so I am going to adopt that good as part of my nature. Or is just the fact that this being, this this deity, says something, and because it's from God, that in and of itself makes it good. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, so, um. And also, I read into it that he was also putting the burden, that same burden of dilemma on Euthyphros too, saying, so is it right for you to condemn your father, which is a huge thing because the gods commanded it, or is it, um, wrong because it's your father? Like, there's that dilemma too. Is of that- a higher good, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's obviously the literary device that's used to, to, contextualize the the conversation about you know the relationship between morality and the gods which is what i think um plato's interrogating in this dialogue right so uh, simply put is it is is morality simply a matter of obeying the will of god or does morality live or exist as an abstraction away from god well let's 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 talk about standard christianity for for, for, for a minute um so socrates you know, points out that, that there's many gods who act in many different ways. And, and a, um, a self-pious, is that, is that a term? <laughs> a self-pious, um, uh, Christian might say, oh, we, we solved this issue with monotheism, right? There's no, God is consistent. God is not. Of course, those people have the Bible to contend with, right? Um, but, but they, they would say that, no, God, God, God is good. God is doing good things. There's no inconsistency there. And that's what I'm going to do. But we have a problem of reaching up beyond God, right? Especially if we define God as the first cause. So I, I, I would dare say, and I'm, I'm sort of asking this question to you, Dennis, for those who, who identify the definition of God as, as the first cause, they would by nature have to go with the second part of the dilemma. They'd have to say good is good because it comes from God. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see why somebody would think that. I mean, and and the people who have defended that view have definitely argued that they would. They have argued that to be a to be a true theist, you really do have to accept that view. Somebody like Augustine accepts that view. And by the way, the the terminology for that is the it's called the divine command theory, or sometimes, actually, more often nowadays, theological voluntarism. Um, but uh, I don't think that's right, though. I don't think that 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 a monotheist has to accept the divine command theory, namely the theory that God's will determines the good. Um, because it seems that you could, you could say that the good depends on God in some other way other than depending on his, his will. So is there a difference between saying the good is God's will and just saying God is good, God is, is a good being, and being fully good, whatever he does is naturally good? Just because that's part of his nature, because using the word "will" almost makes it sound arbitrary. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And in fact, actually, that would be one of the that's I, that's clearly one of the criticisms that Socrates is making of that kind of view. Socrates is clearly criticizing the divine command theory in this in this dialogue um, as being an arbitrary view. If if the if God's will determines the good, then God can't even have reason for His will, because if He did, that would be the real reason why it was good, right? So he, it must be that. Um, it's actually just kind of arbitrary. It's almost like a flip of the coin, right? That's what, that's the way it seems. So a lot of theists, in fact, more theists in the Western Christian tradition have argued against the divine command theory than have argued for it because they've, they've argued that it's, it, it, it doesn't really explain the nature of the good. It doesn't, it also doesn't even make it, it makes it, it makes it so that Calling God good is only, is true by definition. It's tautological. Yeah, it's not even a substantive claim anymore. And so there's a sense in which you really can't call God good then. Whereas if, if you can say that, that there's in some sense a, a, a standard of morality that's independent of God's will, then it makes sense to say that God's good because in some way he conforms to that standard of morality. Because if you accept this theory, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's popular for modern Christians to dismiss part of the Old Testament and saying, well, that, that is just cultural history of a Bronze Age people and, um, and it wasn't nearly as, as evolved. We can take, for example, the New Testament as more um, representative of Christianity than the Old Testament. But the the counter to that would be if they accept this, they have no basis for dismissing the Old Testament as being immoral, because all they can say is, well, according to the Old Testament, it's the action of God, and you can't come in and arbitrarily say that seems immoral, i.e., it's not from God, because there's 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 no abstraction to there's no yardstick to measure God against on that. So they would have to say it's all equally moral, whether he's yeah. drowning every person who ever existed or he's pardoning a whore, it's all equal. Yeah, yeah, that seems that does seem. That seems right. Uh, there's something that I that I should clarify, though. It it so on the one hand, it seems like it, in, if you're going to make morality and the good dependent on God, which you kind of want. I mean, in some sense, you want you want God to be the source of good in the world, right? I mean, otherwise, why would you worship God, right? Um, but uh, if you don't make the good dependent on God's will, then it seems as if you're making the good entirely independent of God. And when you do that, then it's not clear that we should worship God. And so it looks like the dilemma that, that Socrates is talking about in the Euthyphro makes it so that there's no, there's isn't a good, there isn't a good answer to this question. I think though that somebody like Aquinas would say that there really is, that, that the good can depend essentially on God, his nature without depending on his will. Hmm. And, and by depending on his nature and not depending on his will, it's not arbitrary, but it's still 
flowing, the good still comes from God. It's still dependent on God in some sense. That's, that's the, the viewpoint that's, be, that people in the Christian tradition have argued that tries to, in, in, in essence, sort of, you know, split the difference in the dilemma, right? Try to avoid the problem of either having the good be in, entirely independent of God, which is what I think Mormonism does, or, um, having, uh, the, uh, good be entirely dependent on God's will. Which is what um, people like Augustine and Descartes uh, argued for, but that's not the like I said, that's not the dominant view in Christianity. I would say Mormonism can't separate the two at all. Well, let's get to Mormonism in a second. I, there's 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 well, two two areas that, that you that you kind of went over pretty quick that I want to circle back on. So if if we if we take the other view, so we we have the view that good is what comes from God. If we say no, no, that that doesn't make sense as they they do in the in the dialogue. And they say, good, the good has to exist independent of God, and God recognizes it. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's, there's a certain problem. First of all, now, where if you take, um, who's the guy with the banana? Ray Comfort. If you take a Ray Comfort sort of proof, Ray Comfort, you guys all squinted at me. That he's, he's a, he's a evangelical apologist. He hangs out with Kirk Cameron. He's kind of oh. scary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so, scary so, in and so, of itself. And, and, and he, he's one of those that argues from complexity. Like, the world's too complex. You have to have this first cause that can explain all complexity. Um, but once you posit that good exists independent of God, now you've got this other complex entity out in the universe, which you could, in fact, argue is even more complex than God. Um, and now you've got a problem because you're no longer saying that everything has to come from God. And then you have to explain where in the world good comes from to begin with. Yeah. Which is, which is why the answer you just gave is so appealing because once you separate it from God, you've got a big mm-hmm. problem right now because the good exists and you no longer have any cause for it. Yeah. Well, that's why Aquinas thinks that it's, it's not separated entirely from God. It's separated just from God's will. It's part of God's nature to be good. It's a necessary part of his nature. From Aquinas' point of view, God couldn't, it's just, it's against his nature to do anything that would be evil. He wouldn't, it wouldn't even be possible for God to do something that was, that was evil, right? Whereas somebody who is a divine command theorist would say, well, you know, in a sense, God can do whatever he wants and whatever he does is by definition good, right? So that, that would be the, the different ways that you, so in other words, there would, according to Aquinas, at least he claims this, there isn't this separate thing. It's not really separate. It's part of God. It's just separate from his will. Okay, I'm going to ask a really stupid question because I, I don't get the difference really on a practical. When you're looking at this practically, if you're trying to, to figure out, okay, then how do we know what good is? How can we recognize it? We know that in the Old Testament, God has done some pretty heinous things. I mean, he's a bit of a bugger. So if we've got these actions of God that appear to us to be immoral, and yet we have Aquinas on one hand saying, but he would never do anything that was naughty. Well, then those things must be good, right? Because God did them, and by his nature, he is good. As opposed to divine command theory, which is, well, he just said it was good this time when he did it. Hmm. But the effect is still that these acts that we as mere mortals look at and say those are pretty nasty, we're still having to say that they're good. Yes, yeah. Well, I, I don't, I'm not sure that Aquinas would say that the actions that we find morally repugnant in the Old Testament um, really are things that, that God commanded to do, right? Because it, remember, it's important to remember this in the Catholic tradition. They, they don't take the Bible very literally, not, um, you okay. know, and it's, it's usually interpreted in a very metaphorical way. Wait, can <laughs> I just slow this down and <laughs> interpret this for, for listeners out there who might be like me? 
this is what I think I hear you saying. (laughs) (laughs) I think I hear you saying, basically, what we're talking about here is, does good exist independently? Yes. Is there such thing as good? Or do you need God to make things good? Or is God naturally good? That is, that is what this whole discussion revolves around. Yeah. Now, when you apply it to the Bible, what you're saying is, um, so the Bible is saying that God is commanding these things like genocide. Right. So does that make genocide inherently good because God said it and God is good? Or is it good because God commanded it? Right. Am mm-hmm. I understanding that yeah. in layman's terms? Although by introducing the Bible, the Hebrew Bible in this case, by introducing that, I to we simplify bring, it, not complicate it. Bring in, you've compl- we've compl- well, no, I got, it. I was me. Um, we it complicates the issue because there's another question, and that is whether that's an accurate representation of what God did, right? And and I think that somebody like Aquinas, some, who takes that kind of position, could say that 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 we actually have reason to think that it's not because it is immoral. Okay, right? but then, whereas a divine command theorist might not be able to say the same kind of thing. Then it just seems to me that we're saying we are holding we are deciding what whether or not god did something on the basis of whether it's moral which means that we've got a standard external to god yes yeah, so this is this is the next dimension thank well, you well i Megan. think it's i think it's just external to his will so right? we we yeah. so far we've been talking about these two entities these these two imaginary beasts battling over tokyo god <laughs> and good but but what we've implied here in the discussion is there's actually two other dimensions down here us and good because in a lot of what we've talked about we imply that we in fact recognize good as we keep talking about the hebrew bible or aquinas we keep talking about good as if we have some kind of view into it it's not a simple philosophical problem to to um to resolve because just because you think something's good doesn't mean it's good i just want to know if i need to go commit genocide or not can we figure that out well so i mean so the question (laughs) for the people who dismiss the hebrew bible and saying this is not really God because he's acting in a repugnant way, you would have to ask on what grounds do you say that? Exactly. Uh, well, on the grounds that it's immoral. But where do, where do you decide that? Where do you decide, get that decision that, oh, this is immoral? How do you know that? And morality changes. Well, I, yeah, but I, I, think, I think our moral intuitions are way more grounded than our religious intuitions by far. Like, for example, we, we do. We all, there's a universal reaction to that genocide. Maybe there wasn't back at the culture at that time, but there's a universal reaction to that genocide now. People have a very difficult time with it. Even the people who believe in the Bible literally, they, they recognize that this is a problem that they have to answer, that they have to deal with, right? Um, and, and it, it, there's all, you know, there's volumes written about this in the Jewish tradition because they don't, it's not like the Jews just think, okay, well, Abraham was just a great guy. He just did what he was supposed to do, right? They, they recognize that the Akeda, is a really difficult story. You know, the story of, uh, of uh, Abraham and Isaac, God telling Abraham to kill his son. Um, this is deeply problematic. Um, somebody might argue that that story is actually a good reason to think that the divine command theory is correct, I think. But, um, but we have something that Jews don't have. But we've complicated. Have. <laughs> See, what, by bringing in the Bible to talk about this, I think we've unnecessarily complicated the philosophical issue. Force because now we're talking about whether, whether we know, I mean, what we know about the whether the Bible tells the truth about what, God did in his interaction with human beings or not, right? Exactly. Uh, and that's that's another question that, you know, to settle that, you'd have to, to you'd have to know the history, you'd have to know scriptural interpretation, you know, it, there's a lot more involved in trying to settle that question. Well, but for a practical <clears throat> Christian, they would I would think argue that the only way you can know God is through the Bible or through your holy texts. And so that does become 
know, that's how you know. This is sort of an American Protestant it. view yeah. when they get yeah. ahead of the churches, right? Yeah, no, exactly. but in Christianity, fools. it's important to recognize that the <laughs> we New have we have continuing <laughs> revelation. Trumps everything you're saying right here. If if God's morality can change as society's morality changes, problem solved. Okay. End so of discussion. Excellent, excellent segue. Let's talk about Mormonism because if if there's anything Mormonism does well, it's take complicated questions that have been open for thousands of years and giving an overly simplistic kind of wrong answer to them. That's what I'm so, here for, folks. So <laughs> let's talk about Mormonism solution to Euthyphro's dilemma because Mormonism actually has one, and it, it is it is sort of interesting. Um. So as Joseph Smith introduced the new theology of God, uh, of course, in the early days, you know, we have the, the discourses on faith and, and his early revelations all are um, conforming to a standard Christian view of, of God and God as the, as the first creator and the omniscient, omnipotent, um, all being God. And then, of course, by the Nauvoo period, he's drifted from that quite substantially and he's introduced the idea that, that being a God is a successive act. And that, that mankind transcends their mortal being, gets resurrected, and then by and by becomes a god. And in fact, the god that we have to deal with is, um, an exalted man with a penis who has achieved priesthood status and can, <laughs> that's for you, Lindsay. I'm gonna throw you a bone. Oh god. <laughs> I was gonna make a Adam God joke, but I'm not going to. <laughs> So, 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 the, the, there are so many jokes there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the bottom line is, given the Euthyphro dilemma, Mormonism cannot take the, the left branch here. Mormonism cannot say the good comes from God because Mormonism has to, by definition, say that God became God by following a pattern that was laid out for him before him. And, and so when Mormons say today, and they do, and Mormons in fairly high authority say God is om, omnipotent, they're lying to you because Mormonism does not believe that at all. And I have in front of me this, um, the, the, the Golden Bible, um, the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 42, um, where, where Alma is going on this big discourse about, um, God and repentance and mercy and justice. He's talking about things, but it applies to the good also. And he comes to this, this, this conclusion, um, where he says, um, what do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? So, so he's positing, you know, we're talking about the good existing out there. He's going full on platonic forms and he's positing the justice and mercy and all these other things all exist out there independent of God. So he says, what do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. Which in Mormon theology means God is God because he is obeying a strict set of orders. He is following this pattern. And were he to diverge from that, he would cease his calling. He would cease his office. So he is God because he recognizes this pattern and follows it. Can I read something from another Christian theologian? I won't call him an apologist because I don't know that much about him. But he, uh, this, is, is this is a man, I will tell you his name. He's written a book on it. Hold on just a minute. It's called no. Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Mid-Air. Have you heard of that book? Anyway, this guy is saying that he has figured out the dilemma. And it's a similar kind of answer. He's saying that that atheists would say that there's only two ways to go with this dilemma. There's only two tenets. But there's a third one that you miss, 
which which you're That's saying. That's what is, I was saying, talking about. Yeah, <laughs> Mormonism would solve. No, not Mormonism. Aquinas' position is the third of, position. Of, I'm sorry, but Mormonism solves everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you believe that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so he says, okay, he says, the Christian rejects the first option that mor- morality is the arbitrary function of God's power, and he rejects the sec- second option that God is responsible to a higher law. There is no law over God. The third option is that of an objective standard, is that an objective standard exists that avoids the first horn of the dilemma. However, the standard is not external to God, but internal, avoiding the second horn. Morality is grounded in the immutable character of God who is perfectly good. His commands are not whims, but rooted in his holiness. Could God simply decree that torturing babies was moral? No, the Christian answers. God would never do that. It's not a matter of command. It's a matter of character. So are you say, would, would you say that the Mormons then would say that the priesthood is that good? This is important. That was not the Mormon view. The view that you just expressed was Aquinas' view that I was talking about before. That's the view. That's the view that the Christians have typically. I mean, you're, you're going to get people who are divine command theorists among Christians, too, because they argue about this. But that was what I was trying to express earlier. <laughs> right? That is not the Mormon view. Right. Or at least, well, I know it could be the Mormon view. This is important to recognize. Mormonism is a diverse religion. It's not, it's not, sing, you know, there's. And just because the Book of Mormon says something and just because the King Follett Discourse says something doesn't mean that Mormons believe it. You know, Blake also doesn't believe the King Follett Discourse. Right. Um, in fact, actually, most of the Mormon leadership doesn't believe that stuff anymore. So they don't even believe the story that you just told about why God would have to be subject to to um, morality outside of himself. But even if that is the Mormon view, and it's the Mormon view that I held when I was a Mormon, it's got deep problems. And the reason that it has a deep problem is this. Um if morality is completely independent of God, then there is something that you should be concerned with in just as fundamental a way as you are with God. In fact, in a way, more fundamentally than you are with God. You determine whether God's God based on your morality, the morality that you recognize as an independent thing. And if that's really your concern, you're not a, you're not a theist, you're a Platonist. Right. Absolutely. That's what your real concern is. That's what you're really focusing on. And, and so you don't really worship God. And that's the argument that people have made against the kind people in the Christian tradition have made against the kind of view that Mormons advocate. That's why they don't go that way. That's why they say, well, no, morality cannot be independent of God, even if it is independent of his will. Yeah. The, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, no, but so taking this, why I was going to say this is a Mormon view. Mormonism takes it a step further. They combine the two. This is what I was saying. God is good, right? But God was not the first God. He had a God before him, and he had a God before them, which people dealing with this dilemma have to grapple with. Okay, well, then who told him? Where did good come from? Did good come from God? Mormonism solves this by saying what you said at the beginning of the podcast, which is basically, it's too complicated. We don't know, first of all, which is the first answer. And the second one is, good has always existed. God has always existed. They're immutable. You can't separate the two. God is good. God exists. Therefore, good exists. I mean, it's it's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a cyclical. But, but God hasn't always existed, though. According to Mormon theology, the God had. who is God the Father wasn't always God. No, and he had to be organized out of un, in whatever it was matter. Well, and I've argued before on the podcast that in the Adam God theory, that the Adam God doctrine, I should say, um, that Elohim was the first great God, and then I think it says that in in, in the Pearl Great Prize, but that's still has a problem of then you have a first um and 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 so 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 let let's highlight that then let's put it aside cuz it's an interesting question but it's unsolvable which is where does good come from um and and mormonism has no solution for that um 
if, if, if you define God as the first cause, then you have a solution for it. You then have a problem with defining where that came from. And it's, it's a, it's a recursive problem that almost all. I, you called a problem. I think Mormonism sees that as a loophole. I think, I think most Mormons just ignore it. Right. Well, but it, I mean, you acknowledged it. Philosophy is designed around these, these questions. There is no answer. Mormonism has developed a loophole for the unanswerable, and well, that is why it's so compelling. Well, this is where I want to get to. that there is no answer is a pretty hyperbolic answer. <laughs> That's true, right? That and is it's so. not. Yeah, I mean, you, you should. You really shouldn't go so quickly to that, right? I mean, there's there because there's so much discussed. You know, there are a lot of people have given answers and given lots of good reasons for why they give the answers that they give. But and did we've they got have the priesthood? Really? <laughs> did they have the, the spirit? Oh, maybe I don't understand. Yeah. So there's there's another if, problem that we hinted at here that I I think is I think is key. The minute you say the good in, exists independent of God as an entity out there, you have a problem of God immediately becomes superfluous. If there's good out there, then then what the hell do we need God for, right? He's a middleman. Well, he's not totally superfluous, <laughs> right? Because maybe he maybe he's further progressed along, and so he knows more about it, and we can listen to him, like the Buddha. You know, the Buddha, in some way, you know, sort of figured something out about both ethics, compassion, and also enlightenment that nobody else had figured out yet. And and so it makes kind of you know it makes sense to listen to him and and learn from him. And if it works in your life, then to do that too. And so, you know, God could be like that. And he could still right? be the, like the arbiter, right? Like he could say, and I'm going to hold you to this good. Like if you sin, then I'm going to punish you. And if you don't, then I'm well, going to reward you. I, th- I think Buddhism is an interesting um, parallel. It, it, it's, 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 it's something that the, the same kind of dilemma. If, if we're going to be vastly reductionist and, and simplistic, you have um, Hinduism with a pantheon of, of thousands of gods and complex practices. And, and then, then, then you have the Buddha coming along and sort of saying, we have direct access to the Dharma ourselves. And if you follow the right path and, you know, you, you understand the, the, the noble truths, then you can by and by through practice and rightful thinking achieve that yourself. So when Buddhism splits, Buddhism doesn't become an atheistic religion, but it very becomes that the gods sort of don't matter. And in, in old traditional forms, Theravada Buddhism and, you know, um, th- those sort of things, the gods become a very, very metaphoric and not very important at all because it's something on a path that you can follow your, your, yourself completely. So, so going this solution to the problem by positing the good and, and following that practice, they don't need God. Yeah, but I wasn't bringing up Buddhism to talk about their gods, right? I mean, I think of Buddhism as an atheistic religion. Right. Um, I was bringing up Buddhism to point out that the fact that the good is independent of God doesn't mean that we couldn't learn from God about what the good is, right? I mean, if he's really more advanced than, than we are in his moral progression, then we could learn from God. So it's not like God becomes superfluous. However, you could still make the case, though, that we aren't really worshiping God we're really worshiping the good and God happens to be the, somebody who knows maybe a little bit more about it than we do and conveys some of that knowledge and we learn from him along, you know, along the way, right? But in a sense, when Mormonism has this problem, not just because of the good, it has this problem because they put God inside nature. God is not the ex nihilo creator of the world. And he's inside of it. He's limited by the natural laws. He's limited by moral laws. And all of those things, since he's dependent on that environment, um, in a way, de- deciding that he's good is really deciding that in some way the 
something about his environment is good, right? Mm-hmm. And and so really we're focusing on that. It's really the, really the object of our worship is actually goodness itself or morality itself, and not not God. Or when we're when we're worshiping or when we're in awe of his power, it's really we're in awe of the power of nature, not really God, right? Because anything he can do, he does it because of natural laws, right? So it's really nature that we're in awe of, not really God. And so it's hard for Mormons to to make the case that this is the being that everybody should worship, right? If that God existed, even if that God did exist, I would claim that's not God. That's not that's not a being that is worthy of worship by all, right? For that for that reason. Well, I like what you're saying about in, in Mormonism um, that that God is a more advanced being. So God is a is a like is the a, Buddha is. is a teacher, a bohitsava. Yeah. yeah, he's like somebody who's who's further along on the path, and he's going to come back and help us. That 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 is a, that is that is a view. So Mormonism has another part to the solution of the dilemma. So let I me mean, let's be clear where we are so far. Mormonism has fully extracted the good from God. Mormonism does not define where the good comes from. It just it just ignores that question. A very important question, but Mormonism doesn't have Jack to say about it. But then, as I pointed out, now Mormonism's got a problem. They separated God from good, so God doesn't matter anymore if we if we can access it. So, so what Mormonism says in the, in the second punch to this is they say we can't access it. So, if we go to Mosiah three nineteen, um, we read: "For the natural man is an enemy to God, and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, unless he yield to the enticing of the natural spirit and putteth off the natural man and become a saint through the atonement of Christ through." Becoming as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things the Lord sees fit. So we'll, we'll ignore the dilemma that we're the offspring of God, but we're his enemy. But what, what this is solving is it's saying, all right, God, good's out here. God's separate from good. But it's saying, you don't know what good is. You're an enemy to, to good. You have no idea what good is. So, so it's true the Old Testament might be immoral, but you can't tell me it is because you're so screwed up that the only thing you can do in this scripture is obey, submit. That's, that's the Mormon path to goodness. It says, okay, good is independent from God. Yeah, but you don't know what the good is. And the only thing you can do is do what your file leaders tell you. Wait. Hence Mormon solution. See, and There's a logic I would, to that I would answer. get a fail in your class because I still am stuck on this. I still don't understand. I'm not getting enough evidence that Mormons think that good is separate from God. It's in the King Fallout discourse. It, it has to be because good, God, how can good come from God? Here, here's how it is in the King Fallout discourse. In the King Fallout discourse, uh, Joseph Smith said that, that God had to learn to become God. If God is an, is, um, was once a man, and then he, he to, was also fallen like us. And he had and, to learn to become God. But this is a whole different tenet. Okay, we don't really follow everything in the King Follett discourse. The way that it's taught in Mormonism, right? Were you taught that growing up? Because yes. I wasn't. I was taught that God that God has always existed, and so has good. Mm-hmm. That God is. We get to be man. We get to grow and become gods. But God is not always that way. That was more of a Brighamite. Adam God thing that he got to become. Well, it was a Joseph Smith thing. What, though. It's you in guys the King are Paul looking at me like I'm crazy. Well, it's I'm just, the, I'm it's, just how I grew it's up. It's in the it's King Paul discourse, though. It's not Brigham Young. Uh, it's, it's actually in Joseph Smith's King Paul discourse. And notice that when Joseph Smith introduced the King Paul discourse, he basically said, "I'm going to tell you the most important thing I've ever said in my life." 
Right. When you look at the language right at the beginning of it. He says, I'm going to tell you the most important thing you'll ever learn about and, the nature and that's of God. God's... And it's about your own nature. And that is that, that God used to be like you are. He had to learn to become God, which means Did he had to never... learn natural okay, law, I, moral yes, law. I agree with that. It's and independent it's... of him. And it's not just, it's not just in the King Paul discourse. You can't get out of this because we've got the book of Mormon saying God's, the same thing. But yeah. our God. God could cease to be God. Our God trains and had a mortal experience like us. Our God did. But I was taught that God's God, the great beginning, was has who has always existed. Well, this is, yeah, but, but where that, does that come from? That this is a modern construction. You're right. What, what's happening now is people have post-war, post-World War II, Mormonism just got a big heart on for trying to sound just like everybody else, become Protestant. And they start mashing all this stuff into Mormonism. And And you're right. They're saying this stuff, but they're not reconciling it. I mean, Mormons say God is omnipotent and omnipresent at the same time saying he's in a body and needs the Holy Ghost because he's blocked into a body. They'll, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And, and for somebody, you're a little bit younger than the rest of us here. And, and, and I think, I, I, I don't say that pejoratively. I said in the, in the seventies, we openly talked about King Paul. It yeah. wasn't a bad, it wasn't a bad thing. Correlation really affected the way people talk about Mormon theology. It affected it in such a way that Mormon theology is no longer Mormon theology. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. And it's I'm not trying to like confuse, now. I'm not trying to confuse the dialogue, which you guys are going in good places with. That's not, Thanks I'm just for saying approval. it's very difficult for me. To, the Mormon concept of God that you're talking about is not the God that I grew up in. To me, God and goodness were the same thing as if God itself was good. Mm-hmm. Goodness, but, that you know, is God. So we do worship Mormons. Uh, very, you know, in the 19th century, Mormons didn't care about being considered Christians by right, the rest right. of the Christian world because they thought the rest of the Christian world was apostate. And it's more consistent if you're, if you think that they're apostate and they say to you, "You're not Christian." It's more consistent to say back to them, "No, actually, you're not. You're the ones who are not Christian." But instead, what Mormons now do is they say, "Well, oh no, we're Christian too, just even by your standards, despite the fact that we told you that you're not Christian by our by the fact that you're an apostate, you know, version of Christianity." Um, uh, but now, so now Mormons, you know, do try to talk as if, try to use all the same language that Christians right. use. They try to call God omnipotent, right? Um, they try to, they try to act as if God is the source of everything in the universe. But all of this is denied by Joseph Smith. He's, God is not the ex nihilo creator of the world. He's in it, not the reason for it. He's part of it. He's limited by its, by the, by an environment. Well, there are things outside of God that in some way limit him. And so he is, there's no, there's no question about it. The Mormon concept of God is just fundamentally not the same as Western theism. Well, there's another not problem. The I, I like the word you use limit because there, there's another dilemma here that Mormonism introduces. I, I think I've hinted at this before, but to me, it's a really serious issue and nobody else understands what the hell I'm talking about. Um, so Mormon, if, if good exists outside of God, as Mormonism necessarily, I, I say, duh, um, requires. Well, as, as, as a human being proceeds towards godhood, they proceed towards this point of making the correct or the good action over and over again. And according to Mormonism, God is omniscient and can see the future, right? So God gets to a point when he achieves exaltation where he is always choosing the right choice. Like, if he's going to choose between Pepsi or Coke, he's going to choose the perfect, because he's a perfect being. He's going to make the perfect decision. But and he's he, also limited. He's not limited at all. He knows the future. He knows the consequence of every action. So God, in fact, knows what his choice is going to be. Right, Cause, cause because God, he's God. God can't have a blind spot to God, because God's actions involve God sometimes, right? So, so God knew Jesus would be born and that God would impregnate Mary. 
God knew that. And so God has foresight into his own actions. That means God knows every single thing he's going to do for the rest so of he eternity. he doesn't think he just did. He has no free will. The guy's living in a... We're sorry. The number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Contrap. Right, because he's limited to the laws of goodness. He can't make any choice whatsoever because he knows the outcome of every choice. He He's already lived the entire eternity of his existence. Somebody put a gun to this guy's head. He's in absolute hell. Did John just we kill God? We call that the celestial kingdom, but <laughs> I, wait, wait, wait. I think that, okay, that so was a have... little bit too fast. I think that it. I think that it's true that that um, God's having absolute, exhaustive, definite foreknowledge of the future. You know, like knowing exactly what's going to happen um, in detail. It's true that if that there is an argument that you could make based on that assumption that that human beings don't have free will, and there you could maybe even make the argument based on that assumption that God Himself doesn't have free will, um, but. It's not a for that's not a foregone conclusion. In other words, there are ways of possibly responding to these kinds of problems. Depending on, and we, it takes us too far afield. Oh yeah, you don't well, want to get I'm, too technically. I'm, I'm deep into the tec- bogs of John. I feel like I'm in ninth grade seminary all over again. Libertarian free will versus uh, you know compatibilist free will, and and there just there are there are possibilities there with respect to that, and and a possibility that Mormons should avail themselves of what- is that quite a few people deny that God can see the future. And this is actually an orthodox position in Christianity. It's called, you know, open theism in, in evangelical Christianity argues that God can't know the future. He, he can only know what isn't dependent on free action. And so all of his plans have to be contingent depending on what we're going well, to and, do. Well, and, and you see people like, um, <clears throat> Givens, I think, are moving towards that point of view, right? With God who weeps and some of that stuff. The, it's not explicit, but, but, but there's an implication of that God being a product of circumstance and sort of working his way the best way he can through, which sort of goes back to a Leibniz view of the best of all possible worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that God's just doing Leibniz. what he can. Leibniz like, is, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Um, so, so, um, but that's what I was trying to say. That is the Mormonism that I grew up understanding the nature of God. It could, it could be, but I think the response would be, it's completely inconsistent with Mormonism itself. I well, mean, to, with, with, with Joseph Smith. Right. Well, and, and with the temple, Mormon, Mormon. yeah, yeah, I might be. Maybe I, mean, I was paying attention. Ancient, I, I want, an ancient I want to writing. say that the current Mormonism is more like what you're saying it is. That, that's no, there's no question that it is. But by doing that, by being, by taking this kind of approach, it's no longer what Mormonism was before. It's a completely different ap- approach. I well, mean, that, as soon as you, if you're going to insist that God is the ultimate revelation. source of everything and God really is omnipotent and God's, you know, it, I think the next thing you know, Mormons are going to say that God's the ex nihilo creator of the universe. Once you do that, you're, you no longer have anything left from Don't Joseph Smith. Don't they already? No. Joseph Smith was explicit in denying that there was an ex nihilo creation. The matter is eternal, right? Yeah. Matter can't be created. That, this is but so are we and so are God. And, okay. Well, but that, I, I mean, that, that, that's, that's the point is, is that Mormonism the, really has, when it comes to the concept of God, it really has more in common with Hinduism than it does with Western Christianity. And so this whole, this idea or this debate about whether Mormons are Christian or not, um, it's, you know, it's actually in terms of orthodoxy, it's fairly easily solved. No. The answer is no, they're well, not. Mo- Mormonism right? is like a software application that keeps getting these patches, but the patches aren't consistent with the original operating system. Yeah, that's true. And, and, yeah. and, and so, so the problem is detangling this mess. It's true as Mormonism proceeds to a more Protestant view of God, but then they keep saying that the book, they keep handing out the Book of Mormon. So they're moving further and further away from the foundation, which is Joseph Smith restored. I mean, I think we talked about this in the last podcast. The most important thing about the, the church is that Joseph Smith did the restoration. 
but once you start walking away from the necessity of the restoration and you start distancing yourself from the Book of Mormon, Mormonism ceases to have any meaning to exist as an independent religion apart from Methodism. 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 Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I say that like it's a problem for Mormons. No, well, it sounds like that's where you and your ilk just want us to but it, go. No, it I, still has unique scriptures, though. It, I, I, I gotta say that I know that I'm gonna get like ten comments on this post of like Lindsay's Lindsay's talking about a Mormonism I never heard, but I swear, like this is in my bones. This is the nature of God. Maybe I was no, I, making I think, out with my boyfriend too much, but, and I was away. From I think we're parents. validating that what you're saying is true. That this is what's being taught, and this is what's coming across in conference. We're just saying it's inconsistent with the historical and doctrinal foundation of yeah. the church. But and, when and, I heard those things, I mean, I guess you could call it mental gymnastics. But Terrell Givens, I, I think that he finds a way of kind of rec- reconciling these old ideas of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young with new ideas. No. I don't see it. I don't. I, in fact, I, to, to be to just to be really frank, I hope Terrell doesn't hate me because I say this, but he doesn't ever get careful enough. He's never careful enough to actually count as doing theology. It's it's just really loose. Weeping the weeping God of Mormonism is a, is very very loose. I don't. There are, He's a big listener. There, by there the are way, people so though that I take. <laughs> there are, by the way, there are people who take. You know, I mean, if you're talking about this question of what, how God, how open God is to the future, which seems like we've kind of deviated from our original <laughs> subject here. But there are there are theological traditions that are really interesting that that do argue that 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 God doesn't. You know, God doesn't. Not only does God not plan the future in detail, but that He doesn't know the future, and He's open to different possibilities. Process theology argues this. Open theism argues this. Mormonism traditionally had a debate about it, right? Brigham Young and Orson Pratt argued about this. Of course, more people agree with Orson Pratt nowadays, but Brigham Young thought God progressed in knowledge. Brigham Young thought, Brigham Young thought God progressed in power. Um, and, and, you know, that's a, that's a different view. That view, it, that interpretation of Mormonism has kind of taken sort of the back seat to the more what you might call I call it evangelical Mormonism, but in his book um, on Mormon neo-orthodoxy, o. Kendall White called it neo-orthodoxy, right? He compared it to the neo-orthodox movement in Protestantism. And, but it is true. There are different strains of Mormon theology, and I would say that the dominant strain is the one that, you were, that you're familiar with. Thank but I think it's an incoherent strain. It's incoherent. It doesn't <laughs> make any never sense. Mind. It's trying to mix things together, but it is the dominant view right now. We'll call it the Lindsay strain. I mean, from now on, <laughs> Lindsay and I'll, I'll, I'll write the first... Um, uh, Wikipedia entry. The Lindsay strain, known for its incoherence, will be the first clause of the sentence. <laughs> Can I ask Lindsay to clarify? Because I, I, I am a bit confused. Because I, I thought I heard you do t- say two things. First, that God, our God, mm-hmm. has always been and is good, and good is intrinsic to our God. Right. And wait, wait, second, wait, that there's ask, our God. Ask the question one more time. We had him saying he's going to the bathroom and stomp up the stairs. <laughs> so just start start with the question one more time. Or take a pause. Let him come back because he maybe. Take a... Am I totally just. No, no, no. no, 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 no I no, think no, it's really fascinating. Because I'm like because really you... embarrassed. That no, I'm... it's like you've taken. You're, you're, what you're expressing is kind of what I learned, but taken just a little more comfortable step towards mainstream Protestantism. I think that God is both. But I'm like I'm still Wait. honestly like I appreciate what you're saying in oh, a philosophical I have forgotten. sort of way. We need to circle back on this. You actually believe in God. I do believe in God. So we, she's not just talking. The rest of us are just talking they're bullshit. Gonna, they're coming to get me. We're oh, playing no. a game I'm and she's playing for real. Knowledge, baby. Help me, Terrell Given. She's Where are been you? Blessed by a woman. She knows her shit. I'm telling you. I don't know that we say that publicly, but 
This is <laughs> all. This to... is all. The editor will take this all out. <laughs> okay. Ah, so you, sod off. Do you want to ask your? Ask your <laughs> I was question. trying to get another one in there. I was trying to figure. Okay. What else can I say? Uh, you did rude... work in bugger. That was I got good. in bugger. I, got I thought it. that was pretty I good. It. I was trying. The, the good phrase is bugger that for a game of soldiers. <laughs> What is it? Wait, slow it. That one down. Bugger that for a game of soldiers. What does that mean? It just do I? means I'm not doing that. That's just you're just playing about. No, but like literally, what does that mean? Bugger that for a game. In of soldiers. the back door, give it to me. <laughs> wait, but buggering. Tell it to me. You're going in through the outdoor. What is, is the what game said? of soldiers? I don't know. This one. Like a, like a, a game of soldiers would just be playing about like a kid. So if somebody's asking you to do something hard or or to sacrifice for something, you say, ah, bugger that for a game of soldiers. It's not worth it. I'm not going to do that. I don't that. pretend to understand British colloquialisms at all. They're they're really weird. But they're adorable. <laughs> they are. Okay, cool. Okay, so we, we were just Let's off the I, mic. See if so I can get back to this. You have a question. All right, so I wanted to ask Lindsay about the nature of God because, you know, these simple questions are so much fun to Yeah, and I, I want to point out here to. that the rest of us are playing games. Lindsay, you actually believe in God, right? Yes, I do believe in God. Okay. So, and I hope this comes across respectfully because it's intended respectfully. Okay. I just didn't quite understand. It sounded as though you were saying that our God, in other words, the God of this world, which I was taught was a man who had been exalted and therefore could not be intrinsically be all good himself because good existed before him. Right. You were saying that that God, you didn't see God in that way. Is that correct? That God is not an exalted man? No, I do accept that as well. But you also see him now in his current state as incorporating all good. Is that Yes, correct? but if you take John's... Is, is your question done? <laughs> I guess I'm not quite sure how you can see him as an exalted man and still see good as not being external to him. If God is omniscient and knows the past, present, and future, then God is inherently all good and the good is earned, is earned to be good. How does it follow that he's inherently all good from... His omniscience. Because omniscience includes the past and the present, right? Yeah, but that doesn't mean you have to be good. Just because you know everything doesn't mean you're good. But the but my definition growing up is to be God means to be good. Okay. Yeah, that's true. That would that might follow from the concept of God, but not yes. from the concept so, of omniscience. So if so if you are going to go to the celestial kingdom, if you're predestined or pre foreordained or whatever, you are already good because you're on the path to goodness. You're already on the path to godness. Right. Okay. Goodness, godness, godlikeness. So, so our God has always been God. He always has been, just as matter has always been. Does that make sense? No, probably oh, not. No, he was a man before he was God. But right, but, but men, but men can be gods. But he yes, was not can. in that state. Yeah. So you're saying he was in potentia. He was potentially God. If you can earn, if you can earn, uh, God. What's the godhood? Word? God godhood. <laughs> godhood. You can level up divinity. <laughs> If you can earn divinity, you can earn goodness. If goodness is changing, I mean, we know, okay, so we like to think of God as like the opposite of God is like what? Satan, right? But we can't be Satan, right? We're something else. So the opposite of God is not Satan to us, right? Mm -hmm. But good has an opposite, which is bad. And there's a whole spectrum in between. (laughs) People are going to think I'm nuts. Okay, so if there's a spectrum in between good and bad, and we are always on it, right? The same thing with with godliness, with divinity. No one, already... no one's questioning whether God's good, though. The question is right. whether the good is independent of God. And I don't think Mormonism thinks that it is. What, what? So, I mean, if there were, if, you, you haven't explained why, though. When when God was not yet all the way God, right? 
Was there? You guys a are good... acting like so. God is the destination, but I'm not saying God is. The, I'm saying God, God is, is always journey. God. God, is God <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying though. <laughs> no, no, no I get that. If, the, I'm if goodness that, exists before God exists, then goodness yes. is independent of God. What's wrong with that inference? No, okay. You have to explain what's wrong it with that to, inference. Let, I mean, let, let's look at it this way. Let's say I want to become a professor of philosophy. <laughs> I would say you're thinking of it in a very human term. Yeah, I think I I get where she's coming from. Oh, don't I'm understanding. Go there. As soon as you go there, there's nothing to, res- to respond to. That's what I'm saying. Why do you think I'm see, so but, confused no, about but, what you're saying? See, but you're following the Mosiah three nineteen thing. You're saying human beings don't understand this shit at all. So right. the only thing we can do is quit doing podcasts. Is <laughs> stop that. No. no, seriously. I mean, that's what because there's nothing to talk about once Absolutely. you say. The theology has no meaning. The only thing that matters in Mormonism is obedience. Yep. Yeah, that is it, the, the okay, greatest good. That that's is actually your Mormonism interpretation, but that's uh, not exactly. that's, Mo, that's okay. Mosiah's interpretation. That is an p- interpretation I am accepting, but I'm just saying Mormons would not take it. They would not frame it that way. They would say what that means is not. It's a, not about obedience. It means it's a human understanding. Mormons, don't, thought, Mormons don't understand their own theology. I mean, that's yeah, it's kind of interesting because all the messages that I and. Again, I'm biased because I'm coming from an external point of view now. And so I'm, I'm seeing these things from a different point of view, but I do get the obedience as the highest good message all the time, constantly. I mean, oh, if I you, agree. If in and question, I, I have obey. to say a disclaimer. This, the God that I'm explaining is not the God that I necessarily believe in. But what I'm saying is, I mean, I believe in God because I want to believe in God. God is like magical. Mickey Mouse to me, like I want. There oh, to you be got good like four more comments on that one. I'm sure you <laughs> I'm did. So sorry, everybody. <laughs> Magical. I, I should I say <laughs> that that I, I I know I've probably said this before, and it would probably deserve its own podcast. But in my mind, I'm an atheist. But I think the only theological theist theory that makes any sense is the assumption that God is not good. Once you assume that God is not good, a lot of things fall into place. I agree with that as well. Um, I'm not saying it. it my def- can we just leave my so like my belief out of it? My belief is completely something that I don't want to talk about because people could just punch a million holes into it. Well, just, the problem is the you, Mickey Mouse one. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. I, I will say, based on the discussion, I just <laughs> I came up. I came up that. with a new theory of God. It is the T. H. White oh. once and future king Merlin theory, which is God is living backwards. You get such major culture points for that. It's one of my so favorite so um, for for those who aren't. Don't follow obscure. <laughs> um, in, in The Once and Future King, which Camelot and those things were based on this book, right? Absolutely. White writes that Merlin was living, living life backwards. Yeah. Um, wow. That's why he could, he knew everything. It's so he didn't know what would happen. He didn't know what had happened, but he knew for him everything in the future. Yeah. yeah. Wow. He, it's cool. It's hard to wrap your head around, but, uh, cause it doesn't work. But uh, no. <laughs> other than that, it's a great theory. So God's living backwards. No, okay. It solves all this. I just have to say, I'm, I have to go wait, back to I'm, this really quick. Call the missionaries. <laughs> I'm back in because God is living back. This is all interesting. And I'm not saying that. <laughs> what I'm trying to defend here is the traditional Mormon belief. I have to ask you this wait, question. Tra- no, you're, you you're, you're, traditional defending in the, you're defending, defending the new Mormon belief. Okay, the traditional the new Mormon, Mormon belief. <laughs> Here's yeah. what I'm going to say, though. When you were a Mormon and you weren't given any other options and you heard the idea that the natural man is an enemy to God. Funny how that sentence goes together. I know. So, uh, okay, so I'm just saying you heard that and then you heard this theology of Joseph Smith. In your mind, how did you reconcile that? Because how I reconciled it was what Mormons always reconcile, which drives you crazy, 
Which means um, if there's not an answer, we say, well, we're too stupid to understand. Um, it's a loaded that question. Is I, Mormon God. I reconciled it by leaving the church. It's, it, these are irreconcilable. By the way, there is, there is a, you know, there's a whole tradition in, in Western theism that takes this kind of approach. Um, uh, the first Christian father to, or a Christian theologian to take this approach was Tertullian, who argued that I, I believe because it is absurd. And he also said, to, to go back to a theme that we had a, uh, at our conversation at dinner, uh, that there's a difference between Athens and Jerusalem. And what does Jerusalem have with, what does it have to do with Athens, right? And, and what he was essentially saying is that all of this philosophy stuff is just going to confuse you. And it's, and, and it's just going to show that there are paradoxes. And, and ultimately you're going to have to believe, believe in it, despite the fact that it's irrational. And there's another, you know, Kierkegaard argues the same kind of thing. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, very popular among, um, Mormon theologians. Then if we are approximating God, if we are growing in greater goodness, it's just by pushing this obedience to the extreme, right? Therefore, right. the greatest good is obedience. So God is just obeying like, like, but Mormons don't see it like that. They see obedience as a mechanism to, to goodness. But you never learn if all you're doing is obeying blindly. I think there's a way that, okay, so there's Wait. an alternative Mormon view that I think is more plausible than the new Mormon view, the neo-Mormon view or whatever. <laughs> I like, you, I like you, that. You, 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 neo-evangelical neo Mormon view. <laughs> Again, this the, is not my view. I'm the, just the Lindsay strain. A view. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. It. It's already been it's said on tape, Lindsay. It's think, too late. I think, you, I think it, look, I don't think Mormons really need the thing I keep on pressing on them, namely the idea that they're, um, that God is worshipable. Mormons maybe could drop out the, drop out the concept of worship and just say, no, we think of God as a paradigm, just like the Buddhists think of the Buddha as a paradigm. It's not, yeah. this is not something we're worshiping, but it is a being that knows so much more than we do. And we don't know the, the good because we're naturally corrupted by our sinful state. And so we're going to have to listen to this guy even more so than the Buddhists have to listen to the Buddha. Well, I, I right? call, I call this the karate kid theology, um, <laughs> which is, the, this is a, this is, they won't call it this, but this is an actual defense you hear in Mormonism. The wax on, wax off. <laughs> that, that, that Mr. Miyagi is telling you to do all this crazy shit, um, and to polish the, his car and stuff. You know, and the church is having you polish their car, for sure. <laughs> because you're learning this stuff, that when you have the right priesthood and when you have the right office, then it's suddenly gonna bloom, and then it'll all make sense. But right now, <clears> you're <throat> a fallen person. That you're you're saying um, it you're explaining it for me right right that's what I thought because okay. a bit I notice you can always give this answer anytime okay, we start doing I'm philosophy. not trying to be lazy though I'm saying what like this is not a lazy answer this was a compelling one for me growing up because right. if you believe the natural man is an enemy to God you already and Mormonism let's be honest drills into you that you are a flawed human being so it's not lazy it just makes sense that if it if there is a dilemma the burden is on you because you're so flawed. You're a human being. That's Mormonism to me. Like as sad as that is, you are so flawed that these truths are so um, important. You're that far away from God. You just, well, to be clear, the Catholics had that idea long before the Mormons. Right. But that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, I know it sounds like it's a lazy way of thinking, but I, for me, it was very compelling. It just made sense. Well, of course, I don't understand it. Where, well, because it's too complicated. Because I'm too stupid. Because I'm too much of a sinner. Can Can I ask where the atonement fits into this? Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> if you could see the look on John's face, right? It's just pain. It's pain. I'm sorry, John. Well, I mean, you, you still have you still have. The, don't Don't be sorry. The, the, this I mean, is a the, good conversation. The atonement is about this reconciliation, <clears throat> the good ultimately. Yeah. That that that. So so then you have not only good existing outside of God. 
And because the, you, you, I wish I had the scriptures here because, because in, in, in I mean, let's take like American Protestantism, um, this sort of accepting Jesus as your personal savior, that, that, that Jesus accepts you and accepts you with your flaws and you're saved. You're born again. You're saved. Grace. Grace yeah. comes in. And, but in, in Mormonism, you still have this external justice thing. So you have this complex <laughs> equation of God forgiving, but Jesus paying the atonement and this sort of writing the scales. And it again follows the same paradigm where just like in this youth throwing dilemma, good exists outside of God. Well, for Mormons, justice exists outside of God. Retribution exists outside of God. And they're all having to do all this. It becomes, it really crosses the line from religion to magic at this point, right? Yeah. For, for God, you know, well, I remember from an anthropology class, one of the definitions was, you know, if you implore God to do something, that's religion. <clears throat> if you manipulate symbols or, or nature yourself to make something happen, that's magic. Well, in this view of Mormonism, God's doing magic. Right? Because he's got good and the priesthood and stuff that exists external to God. He participates in it, but exists, it predates him. So what he's doing is magic. He's manipulating stuff to make things happen. It's kind of kooky. But all of this is, speaks to what I'm saying, which is why I keep coming back to it. I don't mean to distract the discussion, but Mormonism focuses so much on our distance between us and God. And yet at the same time tells us eventually we can be like God, but it's constantly reminding us how far we are from God. Yeah. So all of this. It's all, like even the priesthood is another mechanism that places us in between God in, in the way that you just described it. So we are always going to accept anything that's absurd or doesn't make sense because at the end of the day, it's us that can't understand it. Well, that's the, that's the Messiah. That's the second half of the Mormon's solution to this dilemma. A, God, good exists outside of God and it always has and always will. And B, you can't tell the f- difference so quit trying quit trying the problem with this kind of move though and that that some very very sophisticated philosophers like kierkegaard have made um is that it justifies anything i agree absolutely including killing your son that's why we see mormonism where it's at that's what i'm saying because we have we have trained a generation or two of my generation to stop thinking to be obedient and if something doesn't make sense, like, why are all these gay people committing suicide? That seems uncomfortable to me, but it, it's beyond my knowledge. Put it on the shelf. We always hear that term. It's not it pertinent to is. my salvation. It is what it is. That I mean, that's Mormonism. Mormonism has been <clears throat> so watered down to that. That is the Mormonism I grew up on. Well, this is where it's scary, and you're, you're implying this. Because what happens when you accept this fundamentalist view, and luckily, most people resist it. Most people are inherently good. I would say it's because it's in their genetics, it's in their DNA, it's programmed, and it's in it's in the, our 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 um, firmware. Most people are good, and so they don't do things like what the Lafferty's did. But the problem is, once you is is if you pound this into people, and they're crazy. Let's make that let's make that clear. But it does give this avenue for craziness because they have the tools that they've been given in order to to execute on that. When they they look. When you have these big institutions like churches and and nationalism, in order to get people to sort of subjugate their own self-interest, and that means moral self-interest also to the greater cause, because we say the country's bigger than you, go off in the trenches in France and die. That's what we need as a society people to do, and we need them to not question it. We need them to not say to every order that their lieutenant gives, now is that moral? You know, that we, we don't want that. So religions and nationalism 
are these twin powers that get us to um, subject, subjugate that moral responsibility or, or um, to this greater power because most of the time or many times it provides for the greater good, but when it goes bad, it goes really bad. And that's what I would ask every Mormon who is in a stage of some sort of belief, every fundamental that you grew up to on. To give it up. <laughs> no. Whether it be obedience or faith or reverence, you always need to stop and ask yourself, because we were never taught to do this, is this a spiritual value or, I can never say this word as a feminist, hierarchical value? Because is obedience a spiritual value or is it a hierarchical value? Some people will say it's both. So you inadvertently gave us obedience a way to is not a value. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that the the very idea you know, Mormons talk as if obedience is somehow intrinsically valuable. Obedience can only be instrumentally valuable. It could never be intrinsically valuable, and it's only instrumentally valuable if you know who you're obeying. If you know that who you're obeying, it knows more than you do. And so basically, it's going to be okay. It's going to be an instrumentally valuable thing for people who are non-experts in an area or for people who are children. But that's about it. And this is actually the main, one of the main problems in Mormonism is that it's become an intrinsic value, obedience has. And as a result, that has basically paternalized the leadership and infantilized, infanticide, infantilized, made, <laughs> made children of, of the membership. Basically, Mormons are, when it comes intellectually, doxastically, um, spiritually, they're children because they are basically just going to say whatever those guys tell me, those old guys, the I'm ones that look like say. corporate leaders. But see, this is the thing, though, is you use the same move that ultimately is the logical reason behind this whole authoritarianism and obedience culture that you get in Mormonism. What Mormonism needs is to is to quit using that move, quit saying, well, it's just beyond our understanding. We're just too weak. And, you know, well, if that's the case, then it's true of the leaders too. quit listening to them and start thinking for yourself about it. Right. Amen. And that's what I that's where I was going to go. Eventually, our God uh, teaches us to worship the institution and not just in an instrumental way, in an intrinsic way. Our God teaches us to worship the institution over goodness. Well, it has to. Yes. Because and this, right. sort of, this sort of tidies the whole thing up. If you say, listen to what your leaders tell you, and then you evaluate using your own conscience whether or not that's good or not. Well, Oak you've, sort of said that You've once. created a big problem because now you're saying Lindsay's definition of the good trumps the institution. <clears throat> There's a Wikipedia page for that idea. They cannot have that because <laughs> that begs this whole question here. That puts good outside of God, outside of the church again. And bam, they're back into the dilemma. So uh, it's it's an important and interesting question. And I mean, there's been tons written about it. It's We've sort of brushed over some of these solutions and some of these things. But um, for anybody who believes in God, this is an extremely important question. And just like the proofs for God, there's some of them that are, that are surprisingly intriguing, although at first thought, at first blush, they seem kind of daffy. And there's others that have been used for a long time that, that really don't hold any value. So it's an interesting question. I'd invite our believer friends to, to give it some thought. Um, you know, I, I to put my final spin on it, I, I think taking an evolutionary view, these things become a lot easier because they're just in our guts. You could ask the same question to me. You could say, well, so you say that you've evolved to recognize good based on this evolutionary pull, is that really good? And I would say there's no such thing. That, that it doesn't, there's no intrinsic good outside of what we're talking about. So that, that question is irrelevant. That's a theological question. There is no good, capital G. Not every atheist has to say that though. No, no, no. I'm on my, I'm on my own. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't tend to, I don't speak for the club. 
Yeah. There's a club. Yeah. Don't you have your card? With an interesting point to make that I wanted to make earlier is this, that um, notice that more traditionalist Mormons, not Lindsay style Mormons, but traditionalist <laughs> Mormons, what, what their view, I mean, or their view is actually puts them in this, the same kind of situation that atheists are in with respect to morality. They And so in a sense, Mormons could side with the atheists with respect to morality and say, well, okay, the morality, you know, it's just a, it's just a real fact about the world. There are moral facts. Just, you know, there's lots of atheists. In fact, I would say more atheists take that kind of view than take the view that it's merely an invention that, that humans have created. Um, and, uh, and that's not necessarily a problematic view to be in, I don't think. So in, in other words, I think that I'm not sure that Mormonism on the traditionalist view really has that much of a problem with this issue un unless they're really going to insist that their god is the same kind of god as the god in traditional christianity and then when they when they insist that then then of course there is this the problem comes up because god the mormon god is god with a little g not with a big g yeah and and the question comes why do we need them, him at all he, he seems rather superfluous which is sort of why are you looking at me <laughs> I already told you my God is Mickey Mouse. I thought I thought you'd like it when I said that a man was superfluous. Oh, John, <laughs> you have so far. Heavenly to go. Mother is not superfluous. Thank you. I don't pray to Heavenly Mother either. Oh gosh, <laughs> I can just hear I can just hear what people are. saying. Lindsay, if there's a Minnie Mouse. But you should. She might actually listen to you. I, I prayed to Heavenly Mother before. It was as effective as praying to Heavenly Father. <laughs> I believe you. All right. Edit that out later. <laughs> well, you, um, technically, you're not supposed to, right? I mean, it's like, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I was just going to. Uh, any <clears throat> any last thought? I just, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, as always, you can check it uh, us out on the website at mormonexpression.com. We have our Facebook group. And, um, Lindsay, are we going to have a fall picnic? Fall is quickly, even, even tide is quickly falling. I think spring. Spring, all mm -hmm. right. Spring picnics are good. Um, what, what else do we What else do we tell people? You can check out the Lindsay over at the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. You should, you should tell people that, yes. Um, because you're the you're the um. What, we believe in God over there, folks. What What, what do feminists <laughs> call a hierarchy again? <laughs> she's awesome. the, she's the matriarch. <laughs> she's the matriarch. She's the matriarch. <laughs> I am not the matriarch. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Kill me now. <laughs> I loved God as Mickey Mouse. That was fucking brilliant.